are in part two of our Discovering God series through the book of Exodus, and I have entitled this message, A Plan Revealed. And I have a very simple question for you that will lead into the fill in the blank. So if you have your handout that you received when you walked in, you might want to grab that as well. And my simple question is this, how can we know God? Just think, just think about what first comes to your mind. How can we, as finite humans, know an infinite God? Because, see, we don't get to make God up. We don't get to design him ourselves, right? Or we don't get to make God into this sort of glorified version of us, right? I mean, we could do that. We just won't be very accurate. <laughs> How can we know God? And the answer to that question is almost as simple as the question itself, and it's the fill in the blank. We know God through his revelation. We know God through his revelation. You and I can know God because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has made himself known through what is called general revelation, by just the goodness in the world that he has made. I think about Romans chapter 1 that says that, that God's divine attributes are on display in creation. Or, or one of my favorite verses as kind of an outdoorsy person is Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. We can see the goodness of God in creation, in just the beautiful world that he has made. But God has also revealed himself through what is called special revelation. He reveals himself through miraculous events. He reveals himself through personal encounters. He reveals himself through his word, which is our highest authority for faith and practice. And he has revealed himself most perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. I've said this from this stage before, and I'll say it again. You want to know what God is like? God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. So God has made himself known to us, and the purpose of his self-disclosure to us is not so that we can pass a theology quiz or a Bible quiz. He has made himself known so that we can know him, so that we can walk with him, so that we can grow in our understanding of him, so that we can be transformed by him. And I really believe this to be true. And I, maybe I think this way just because I'm so scatterbrained that I have a hard time focusing on just like anything for any length of time. But I think God is revealing himself to us far more than we realize. I think God is showing us who he is and showing us more of what he's about and showing us how we can understand him. I think he is revealing himself to us all the time. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? So today, as we walk through the next two chapters of the book of Exodus, we're going to see one of the most famous God revelation stories in all of scripture, and it will serve us to remind us of the very truth I stated at the beginning, and that is we know God through his revelation. So just to briefly recap where we're at in this book of Exodus, we're two chapters in. We know that Israel is living in Egypt. The Egyptian pharaoh has enslaved the Israelites. We've been introduced to Moses, who is born, who ends up growing up in Pharaoh's household, who comes to the, to the defense of an Israelite who's being abused by an Egyptian, ends up killing the Egyptian, so he has to flee and get out of town, and he ends up getting stuck in Midian, which was about a million miles away from where he grew up, and he's just sort of out there sad, while the nation of Israel is stuck in slavery. And chapter 2 ends with the Bible saying that God remembered his covenant, that he saw the people of Israel as they were crying out to him, and he knew 
what was going on. And that takes us to chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So when we last left Moses, he was living out in Midian, far away from where he'd grown up. He had found a wife, had some kids, but otherwise things were not going great for him. We learn here in chapter 3 that he was working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, which if that's not living the dream, I don't know what is. <laughs> which, by the way, you might notice, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and then you look back at chapter 2, verse 18, both of them reference Moses' father-in-law, except in 3.1, his name is Jethro, and in 2.18, his name is Ruel. Uh, what's up with that? So couple of possible explanations there. The most likely one is simply that uh, in that culture, it was very common for people to have multiple names. So he's the same guy. He's just got a few different names. Uh, or it's possible that, uh, so Hebrew vocabulary is not quite as specific as English when it comes to familial relationships. So for example, we have the word father-in-law and brother-in-law. They're similar, but they're obviously very different. Hebrew does not have that level of distinction. So it's possible that one was a brother-in-law, one was a father-in-law. Either way, it doesn't really matter. But if you're reading an Exodus and you're like, wait a second, those are two possible reasons for that. But I want to just quickly point out, what is Moses doing here? He's a shepherd in Midian. He's being faithful in the little things. Little does he know, God is preparing him to be a shepherd of people by having him be a shepherd of sheep. <laughs> is this exciting training for Moses? I've never been a shepherd, but I'm going to guess not, right? But it's such an important reminder that God uses seemingly insignificant experiences to form us and shape our character. And I just think, here's why being faithful for you and I, just whatever, whatever the little things are in your life, here's why for you and I, being faithful in the little things matters. For, first of all, if we're faithful in the little things, then if God calls us to something big or something little in the future, either way, what are we going to be? Faithful, right? And at the end of the day, when everything else is done and we're kind of, you know, looking at ourselves in the mirror, we're getting ready for bed and it's just us and our thoughts, at the end of the day, we know, have we been faithful to who God has asked us to be or not? Faithfulness in the little things matters. And if that weren't enough, I think we place so much emphasis in our world on kind of the big moments in our lives. And those are cool. I guess I'm all for celebrating big moments. But come on, you and I both know this to be true, that our character and the kind of person we are and the trajectory of our lives is impacted by a thousand small decisions we make in the everyday. It's impacted far more by those things than it is by the big moments. Moses here is being faithful in the little things, not knowing what's in front of him. 
It says that Moses led his flock to a mountain called Horeb, a word that literally means wasteland in Hebrew. So we're not talking about like a hip vacation spot with a bunch of cute Airbnbs, all right? Like Moses is in the middle of nowhere. And this is the same mountain that would be later called Sinai and will factor very significantly in the story. And I just think, man, where does God choose to make himself known? Not in Pharaoh's palace, not in the centers of power. God shows up in the wasteland. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame, and the flame was in the midst of a bush, which, side note, Hebrew word for bush, Hebrew word for Sinai, very similar. So there's a little bit of wordplay going on here. And we don't have time to take a deep dive into this, but there is all sorts of Garden of Eden imagery going on here that would have been evident to the original readers of the story. So Moses sees that the fire is not consuming the bush. And Moses is an ordinary human who knows how fire works. So he, like any of us would be, is very confused. He's drawn in by sheer curiosity. Now remember, Moses was a shepherd. He did shepherdy things. He had been shepherding for a very long time. He had no reason at all to think, oh, this bush is burning and doesn't seem to be burning up. I'll bet you the God of my ancestors is going to speak to me through it. But that's exactly what happens. God calls to him. He repeats his name as a sign of endearment. Moses answers. He's told, don't come near. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. It's the only place in the Bible where ground is called holy. And it's made holy by the presence of God. God identifies himself as the God of Moses' father, and the God of their ancestors, the patriarchs of the faith. And this was about God identifying himself to Moses as the same God who had been faithful in the past and was going to be faithful in the future. So as Moses starts to grasp what's going on, he freaks out and hides his face because, I mean, come on, wouldn't you? (laughs) He backs away from the presence of God. Now, interesting little Bible tidbit here, or at least I think it's interesting, we'll see if you do, Skip ahead to Luke chapter 2, beginning of the New Testament. Some down-on-their-luck night shift shepherds are out in the field doing shepherdy things. Angel of the Lord appears to them, scares them half to death, makes an announcement about an incredible new move of God in the world that they go to see. What is that? It's the birth of Jesus. You see the similarities between that and this. The Bible fits together, folks. It ain't random. It's pretty cool when you see how it all ties together. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God is starting to lay out his plan. It confirms what it says at the end of Exodus chapter 2. God has heard the cries of his people, and he is preparing to respond. And this is, you can make this point from a bunch of different spots in Exodus, but I want to make it right here because it's so important. Look at the language of what God is going to do. He is going to save them from something, which is what? Slavery. And he's going to save them for something. 
what? To bring them into the land. And we find out other places that for them to be brought into the land was for the purpose of worshiping him and serving him and representing them to the world. They are saved from something and they are saved for something. I talked last week about this idea of freedom. And I said last week that as much as I love being an American, and I do, and there is no place else in the world I would rather live, we have kind of some odd ideas about freedom here in America. And if you're a note taker, it might be worth writing this down. That often when we talk about freedom in America, we're talking about freedom from. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from undue outside influence in our lives. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not looking for more undue outside influence in my life, right? But it's just, it's freedom from. It's good, but it's not enough. That sort of freedom leads to, okay, well, great. I'm free. I'm free from constraint, but now what? I think it's interesting that Great New York Times columnist David Brooks says this in his book, The Second Mountain. He says that young people today are literally drowning in freedom. Drowning in freedom. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? (laughs) If he's wrong about anything, I don't think it's just young people, right? Too much freedom from is not enough. And I'm oversimplifying this process, but freedom from itself leads to a different kind of slavery where we are now enslaved, not to some outside overlord, but we are slaves to our own strongest desires. Freedom without purpose isn't all it's cracked up to be. See, Christian freedom is freedom from and freedom for. When we come to know Christ, We are set free from our sin, and and we are set free to serve God and to love our neighbors. Christian freedom is not about demanding our rights. I mean, that just makes no sense for a Christian to do that. It's about being free from slavery to sin, free from slavery to our own desires, free from slavery to individualism, and free to live lives of joyful service to God and others. That's real freedom. See, and there's lots of talk in our secular world about freedom, and we need to remember that we as Christ followers, we use that same word, but we mean something very different. Freedom from is not enough. Christian freedom is freedom for. God sets us free for a purpose, to worship him, to serve him. So let's apply that to our salvation. All of that is review from last week. It's wonderful and good and right to dwell on what we have been saved from. We have been saved from the power of sin. We have been saved from separation from God. It is good and right to dwell on these things, to remember God's grace, and to grow in our gratitude for what God has done. But it is also worth asking the question, what have I been saved for? What have I been saved for? In other words, what has God given me to do? And this is not about salvation by works. This is about active participation in God's kingdom. God's mission in the world is not about, to quote Wendell Berry, encanting anemic souls into heaven. God has a much greater mission in the world than that. It's much more about bringing heaven to earth. And I just think, man, you look at the things that Jesus talked about, and you look at what Paul and Peter and other authors of the New Testament talk about, There's an awful lot in there about how to live today. 
There are an awful lot of resources that we can use and we can take and apply as we seek to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Right? God has something much more for us in our salvation than just waiting for heaven. You've been saved for a purpose. You've been saved for something. And I think too often, and I think through this from a male perspective, just because I'm a male, but I think this can apply for, for women certainly just as, just as much. I, I think that often Christianity can seem sort of boring and uninteresting to us because it feels very kind of passive and future-oriented. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom today. That is not passive nor future-oriented. We were not saved simply to wait for heaven. We were saved to be participants in the kingdom of God. There is good work for us to do. God saved Israel from slavery for worship and service to him. He saves us for a purpose. Now I'm going to get off my soapbox and we're going to continue the story. Up to this point... You can imagine Moses starting to nod his head and maybe even getting excited. Like, okay, God, this is fantastic. You're going to rescue Israel from Egypt, and we're going to go into the land. You go do that. I'll prepare the milk and honey, and then we're going to have a big party. Great plan, God. You go get them. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Oh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So things change pretty dramatically for Moses here in verse 10. God leaves a little detail that he, or God gives him a little detail that he had left out up to this point. It's like, by the way, Moses, uh, you're actually going to be the one who's going to go talk to Pharaoh, and I'm going to use you to deliver the people from, from, from slavery. We good? Great. Go get him, Moses. You got this. And Moses is like, hold up. His enthusiasm for this plan takes a rather significant hit, right? He's like, who, who am I that I can go to Pharaoh? And God says, listen, I'm going to be with you, and this is all going to work out. And I just want to, just for a quick second, I want to pause here, because I said at the beginning, fill in the blank, we know God through his revelation, right? God is a God of revelation. I just want to quickly highlight, what has God highlight, God revealed about himself up to this point in the story? Because I think for some of us, we just need to be reminded of these things that are true about who God is and what he does. That first of all, simply, God reveals himself. God is constantly revealing himself. I just, as I've dug into this stuff the last few weeks, just, man, just a reminder of, God, would you help me to be just aware of, of how you are revealing yourself around me, right? God is paying attention. He sees the affliction of his people. He sees our pain. He sees our difficulty. He sees it. That he is holy, he is utterly separate from us. We are, we are, by his grace, able to have an intimate relationship with him, but he's not our buddy. He is holy and separate from us. He is unchanging. The God of Abraham was the God of Moses, is the God of us. The God who appeared to Moses in the bush is the same God you and I pray to. He is personal. He calls Moses by name, and he repeats his name as a sign of affection, and he goes with us. When God calls us to do something, he doesn't leave us alone. He was with Moses, 
He'll be with us. Just up to this point in the story, he's revealed that much. Next, Moses shifts his attention to a practical concern. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Pause. God says, I am who I am. This is God's self-identification. I am. The idea here is God is saying, I was, I am, I will be forever. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the uncreated one. He is the uncaused cause. In the New Testament, in John chapter 8, Jesus would get himself in trouble with the religious leaders by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Why was that a problem? It was a problem because he was identifying himself with God, right? The Hebrew pronunciation of God's name, I am, or at least our very best guess at that pronunciation is Yahweh. If you've been a church person, you've likely heard that word, Yahweh. God has a name, and that's what it is. But the reason why I say it's our best guess is in the ancient world, it was believed that God's name was so sacred that very early on, it stopped being pronounced. And then to make matters more complicated is Hebrew is written using only consonants, not vowels. And when scribes went through, were starting to translate the Bible, what they would do is they would go through, I should say copy the Bible, not translate. They added vowels, not as letters, but as combinations of dots and dashes that they would put under the letters in a system that I am convinced was invented by the devil. Or at least that's how I felt when I was trying to pass Hebrew class in seminary, right? But this was a serious point is this was meant to aid in reading and pronunciation. But then when scribes got to the name of God, they felt it was irreverent to spell it out like they would any other name because of the whole no pronouncing thing. So again, we don't know for sure how his name was ever originally spoken. There is good evidence that it's Yahweh, but we don't know for sure. Now, it's possible that you've heard of the word Jehovah as a name for God. And that respect reflects something that early scribes tried to do to say, okay, basically, how do we refer to God without saying his name? So what they did was they kept the consonants from Yahweh, it's four Hebrew consonants, but used the same vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And if you take the consonants from Yahweh, add it to the vowels of Adonai, put them together, you get Yahoah. Or our English pronunciation of that would be Jehovah. So that's how we got that name. Like eight of you found that interesting. The rest of you are like, <laughs> Hebrew vowels in church? Really? Move on, dude. All right, I hear you. So terms like Jehovah and Adonai are more common than Yahweh in part because of the sacredness of God's name. But that's also why Part of why in your Bibles you might see the word Lord capitalized or seemingly in a slightly different font than the other words in your Bibles, that is an indication that the word being translated is not Adonai, Lord, it's Yahweh, uh, God's name, right? 
Bottom line, God has a name, and it's not God, right? I am a human. My title is pastor. My name is Brian. God is God. His title is Lord. His name is Yahweh. That's how it all fits together. That's how it all fits together. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have done, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and all the rest of the folks, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And, he, and I will give this people favor in sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. All right. We'll get to that in a second. Here God lays out the plan in a bit more detail. He says, you're going to talk to the elders of Israel, and they're going to be with you. Now, remember, Moses is an ex-Egyptian criminal who has now been out of Egypt for many, many years. He doesn't exactly have a ton of credibility. So God is having to remind him, listen, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of it. You're going to be fine. And he says, you're going to tell the leaders of Israel that you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go for this three-day journey into the wilderness so we can sacrifice to the Lord our God. But we need to remember, I pointed something like this out last week, that we are 21st century Westerners reading an ancient Near Eastern document that is over 3,000 years old. So we need to understand what were they actually asking for. In Hebrew, to say you're going to go on a three-day journey does not mean you are going to go on a trip of 72 hours. Rather, what it means, it is an idiom, it is an expression, which means we are going to leave and come back when we feel like it. In other words, we ain't coming back. They're asking to leave town permanently. And of course, Yahweh knows this is a big ask that they are making of Pharaoh. And he knew that Pharaoh wouldn't be compelled to do anything without a mighty hand. And in a mighty hand or an outstretched arm is a common ancient inscription meant to symbolize Egyptian power. And it's not a coincidence that later in the book of Exodus, language of a mighty hand or an outstretched arm will be used to symbolize God's power over Pharaoh. (laughs) And then I love the last part of chapter 3. God says, I'm going to give you favor in the eyes of your Egyptian neighbors, and you're just going to send your women into the homes of all of your Egyptian neighbors and just ask the people in these homes, say, hey, do you have any gold or silver or clothes that... I can just take and not give back. And God's like, that's not really clear about it, but he's like, I'm just going to make them say yes. So you're going to take all their stuff, and then you're just going to leave. And that's how we're going to get them, guys. 
And like, this is true. Like, this is what it says. And it even, like, later on, when they start to build the tabernacle, like, the gold that's used is like gold from this exact little scheme that God has for him. So, we get to chapter 4. God has laid out his plan. God has said, okay, Moses, I'm going to be with you. This is what you're going to do. I expect, I'm sure Moses will be very enthusiastic now that all of his concerns have been addressed. Verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, Well, what's that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Seems reasonable. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right. So, now we're talking. God says, you want some proof that I'm going to be with you? I'll play. The staff becomes a snake. And by the way, anyone, okay, middle school history. We all remember this, right? Greatest days of our lives. Remember middle school history, the unit on the Egyptians, the headdresses on Egyptian pharaohs? What did they look like? Snakes. Snakes are also a symbol of Egyptian power. So the staff turns to a snake, Moses grabs the snake, it turns back into a staff. The symbolism of that miracle and what it represents in terms of God's power over Egypt, that symbolism will not be lost on Pharaoh when this same action is repeated in his presence later in the story. Then God gives two more signs that anticipate some of the plagues that are going to come upon Egypt, and Pastor Jude is going to lead us through those passages here in a couple of weeks. Now, you've probably noticed up to this point in the story that Moses is giving God quite a bit of pushback here, right? And as, in a minute, we're going to see as Moses shifts from kind of asking questions and expressing doubts to just flat-out whining, like, God's perspective towards him is going to change a little bit. But I want to point out to you what God does with Moses' questions. God speaks to him, this is what I want you to do, this is what I want you to do. And Moses has question after question after question. And what does God do? He engages him. Right? He addresses them. Moses is afraid, so he gives him reminders of his sovereignty and his protection. Right? He doesn't shame Moses for having questions and doubts. And I've just, i got to tell you, I've just never really understood why in some parts of the Christian world it's like a shameful thing to have questions or even doubts about your faith. That just makes no sense to me. Asking questions helps us determine what do we really believe? What does the Bible say? What is actually true? Questions help us to see that there's actually quite a bit of diversity of thinking 
when it comes to secondary issues within the church of Jesus Christ? So if the way somebody thinks about a particular issue is just offensive to us, we're like, no, I can't, I can't, get, I can't be good with that. That we understand there are others who might see that issue differently, right? Asking questions helps us to not just kind of throw our faith away when we see something that is troubling to us, right? Questions, I've, I've thought this for years, questions are not a sign of weak faith. They're a sign of an engaged and sincere faith. And I just have to tell you, just to tell you a little bit of my story, I mean, I became a Christian when I was, was 15 years old, and I wonderful parents, I'm just so blessed to have the parents that I have who taught me so much, but spiritual development was not a, not a big theme in my home growing up. So, so I was taught our faith by pastors and youth ministry volunteers and other people who came alongside with me and, and met with me and helped explain the scriptures to me and taught me how to read the Bible and, and all of that stuff, right? And man, in that, you know, 25-ish years since then, I've never had a time where I've walked away. I've never had a time where I've questioned, do I really believe or anything like that? But I have had significant times of deconstruction and reconstruction. Not tearing my faith all the way to the ground, but just asking a lot of questions and really trying to figure some things out. And I believe differently now than I used to. And my faith is a lot stronger because I went through those periods of asking questions, of wrestling, of studying scripture, of reading books, of having conversations. My faith is stronger because of all these periods of deconstruction and reconstruction I have been through. You know, it's funny I look back on this. My 25-year-old self was pretty sure that when it came to God, everything was black and white, right? And as I'm pushing 40, I'm finding myself much more comfortable with gray and not just in my hair color, right? And I want to be careful here because I want to make it clear what I am saying and what I'm not saying. The fundamental core truths of our faith remain the same, right? Those are the things that remain the same. But outside of that, there's a lot for us to wrestle with. I hope, by God's grace, that I am deconstructing and reconstructing for the rest of my life, right? There's a lot for us to wrestle with. God has made himself known through his self-revelation, but there's a whole lot we don't know. God meets us in our questions. He meets us in the mystery. He meets us in the doubt. And when we try to just shut that stuff down instead of just engaging the process, I think we can do that with the best of intentions, but we do a lot more harm than good. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. That's how I imagine him saying it anyway. God says, listen, Moses, if I'm going to call you to something, I'm going to equip you for it. It's something for all of us to remember today. If God is going to call you to do something, he'll equip you to do it. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but if he calls, he equips. But then we get to the bottom of this. Moses is sort of done throwing up smoke screens, and he just gets to the real deal. He just doesn't want to do it, right? And that leads to a little change in God's tone towards him. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? 
I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take your, in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We'll come to see as the story goes on that the staff is a symbol of God's presence and God's power. By the way, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. That sentence is quoted verbatim in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, to Joseph to let him know that Joseph and Mary and Jesus can return out of Egypt and go back to Israel because they had had to flee to Egypt because of Herod's decree. What's the point? It's the exact same sentence, and it's one sign of many that what Matthew is trying to do in Matthew's gospel is demonstrate how Jesus is a greater Moses. There's all sorts of pictures of that throughout Exodus and Matthew. That's just one of them. Um, verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we have a preview of what we're going to get into these next few weeks as we continue in the story. Moses is going to go to Pharaoh. He's going to demand Israel's release. Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. Some places it seems to say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Other places it seems to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's going on? How much of this is Pharaoh's responsibility? How much of this is God's responsibility? Join us next time on Discovering God through the book of Exodus. <laughs> where we're gonna, I mean, this is interesting stuff, and it, I think that raises some really big questions, and we're going we're gonna to get into this next week and then Pastor Judah the week after that, right? So we have a preview again of kind of what's to come. And then verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Since it's just us, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There's some weird stuff in the Bible, y'all. <laughs> and as far as weird stories go, <laughs> this one's like way high on the list. <laughs> what the heck is happening here? I read a lot of different commentaries this week. I know, sounds exciting. And pretty much the only thing they can all agree on 
is that a lot of Bible scholars have spent a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out what is going on here. This is the sort of exciting work that Bible scholars do, by the way. And about the only thing that they can all agree on is that all of that work has not really yielded much. We don't know what's happening here. Most think that God is seeking to kill Moses, which to me seems a little bit odd given the whole like, hey, go talk to Pharaoh plan that they had just talked about. Only one that I read thinks that God is trying to actually kill Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, which would fit with the whole firstborn son thing from the previous verses, but that's a minority view. It's probably true that the kind of object of God's anger here is, is Moses. Either way, we know that God is clearly upset because Gershom is not circumcised. And Moses' wife somehow, I don't know, like somehow knows, like God is going to kill my husband and I need to do something about it. And she swoops in and saves the day, I guess, by performing an emergency circumcision on her son, who is definitely old enough to have this experience scar him for life, <laughs> pun intended. And then it says, she touched Moses' feet, but the Hebrew only says his. So the Moses is a translation decision. So it could be Moses' feet, it could be the son's feet, but wait, there's more. In Hebrew, feet is a euphemism for not feet. I don't know how your day's going, but at least you're not trying to explain this to a room full of people. <laughs> and then that word bridegroom could just also mean relative. So it's possible that what she's saying is you are now, that possible that she's actually say, going to her son and saying you are now a blood relative of me, which would, have been, which would have been a very normal thing to say after a circumcision ritual. Perhaps the only normal thing about this entire passage. The whole thing is a mess, and I'm getting very uncomfortable, but there is a serious point here. God viewed a lack of circumcision as a very big deal. Genesis chapter 17, verse 14 said that for Israel, anyone who was uncircumcised had broken his covenant. So this is not a trivial matter here. This is very important. God is down with Moses' questions. God is down to be patient and explain things to him, but he's not going to tolerate this level of disobedience. He is about to start a new thing and rescue Israel, and this level of obedience, commitment to his covenant promises is a big deal. So that ultimately, even though the details are murky on top of murky, that is ultimately likely what's going on here. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed and when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So Aaron and Moses meet up. He, Moses fills in Aaron on the plan. 
They go to Israel's leaders, and wouldn't you know it, God was right. God kept his promise. They believed. And what did they do in response to this revelation from Yahweh, this, this revelation, this knowledge that he, he sees them and is about to act on their behalf? What do they do? They worship. That is their response to his revelation. See, God is a God of revelation, and that is how we know him. We know him because he reveals himself to us. He revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. He revealed himself to Aaron through a voice that said, go, find Moses. He revealed himself to the leaders of Israel through Moses and Aaron who came to speak the message that God had delivered them. And man, I don't know, just as we, as we start to wrap up here, I think about this story and I think about how easy it is to feel unseen. Like, I don't know if you've had that experience. Maybe you're going through it right now. I've certainly had those experiences where you just sort of, you feel unseen. You're like, does anyone care? Is anyone noticing? Like, does what I do matter? Like, if, if you're in that spot today, man, I, I, I deeply empathize with that, with that feeling. And I just want to encourage you today that you and I, we can sit here in this room 3,000 years later and half a world away, and we can know that God sees us, that God sees us, that he sees us and he knows. Why? We have the greatest revelation of God there is. 2,000 years ago, God didn't reveal himself only in a bush or only in a voice, but he came as a person, Jesus Christ. And he came to us, a people who were enslaved to the Pharaoh of sin, and he saw us and he invited us to be free from our slavery, to be transferred from the domain of darkness, the Bible says. He invited us to follow him. He invites us to learn from him. He invites us to participate in his work in the world. And then he showed us the depth of his love by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, and rising from the dead so that you and I can know that our greatest pharaohs, Satan, sin, and death, will have no power over us. We have been saved from those things, and we have been saved for a purpose by a God who sees us. Somebody in the house of God say amen this morning. Amen. And so we can look to the cross and see it for what it is, an eternal reminder that God sees us, that God is for us, that God is with us. He is a God of revelation. He is a God who meets us in the wasteland. He is a God who meets us in the wilderness, in our weakness. He meets us in our enslavement, and he shows us the way to freedom, freedom for a purpose, to love him, to worship him, to love our neighbor. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. And as we pray, I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. And if you just, you walked in here maybe feeling unseen, you walked in here carrying a burden, you walk in here and maybe even this language of enslavement feels relevant to what you're going through right now. And you just need to know that God sees you or you need just freedom prayed over you. Or these folks volunteer to come up and be part of this team because they love to pray and love to pray for you. So they're hoping they'll get the privilege to pray for you today. So come and see them if that would be a blessing to you. And God, for the rest of us, we just, we thank you so much for this, this incredible story written millennia ago on the other side of the world. You speak to us so powerfully through it. We thank you that you are a God who sees. We thank you that you are a God who saves and that you save us from our sin and that you save us for a purpose. So God, I just want to ask 
that for each and every one of us in this room, that this week you would help us to live with eyes wide open to the ways that you are revealing yourself to us. We don't simply want to get stuck in the same old patterns. We want to be open to your transforming work. We want to be open to knowing how you're working at our jobs and our schools and our families in our hobbies, and our errands, all of those different things. Because we want to be able to serve you in those things. We want to be able to see your purpose in those things. We want to be able to glorify you in those things. So God, would you continue to open our eyes? Thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Would you give us eyes to see? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.